Hey, man. Welcome to the podcast. Is this your studio? It's kind of messy. It's not because I vacuum my, my office every day. Do you really? I do. Can you come over and do mine, please? I would if I were, <laughs> if you were closer. <laughs> we do need to meet up at some point. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if people know that, that we haven't actually met in person. That's true. I've actually, I met Paul before I met you. Yep. I, I met Paul during his road trip. Yeah. He uh, was nearby and we had lunch. But uh, yeah, you're only a couple hours away from me. We got we to gotta figure that out. Maybe do a live recording. The second ever live recording of Does Not Compute. Yeah. That'd be kind of cool. Make some history there. Yes. I do vacuum my office every day. I, I have nothing to say add except <laughs> that's, uh, that sounds really nice. Yeah. <laughs> it's Anyhow. a nice clean office. <laughs> what, uh, what have you been up to? Well, oh man. So yeah, I'm still just kind of hacking away at this uh, front end Nuxt redesign of our of the remote ham radio console. And uh, that a couple of days ago, I just decided to, you know, do the good software engineering thing and actually make a list of all the things that needed to be done. Actually, a Trello board style list. You're speaking my language now. Kanban, I guess, mm-hmm. is the is the thing. You move the cards around. Yeah. And it was kind of fun because, like, yesterday I, I just had a bunch of stuff. It's probably, oh, like 20 things on here right now, and they're varying in, in intensity. I was like, oh, I'll pick a pick a few easy ones, and like I banged out four of them right in like two hours or something. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, this is this is actually pretty good. And then today, like, I didn't even get through one. <laughs> <laughs> right, it was just supposed to be a simple thing. Uh, I'm just adding the ability to pull. We have like we can post bulletins, so like little news updates and alerts and stuff. And if you're on the page, you get you can just read it and mark mark it as read. Right, just broadcast little things, and that's all done in the Rails app and just getting that to work with first of all it was all previously just server-side rendering like i'd render html just spit it out and just Mm -hmm. put it on the page in ajax and it was done with rails and you had to deal with cores and i had to deal with getting my session tokens in there from from the nuxt app and it was a whole thing i was going to require actually quite a bit re-engineering on the rails end so but i already kind of know how i wanted things to work and i want to move things to phoenix anyways i just rewrote that bulletins controller uh, in Phoenix, and just made it a plain old RESTful JSON API, and nice. it is fine. <laughs> you know, added the uh, the model so we talk to the database and returns JSON, and uh, I used uh, it uses Markdown, so I just use client signed Markdown thing called uh, something down. Mark it down. Uh, showdown. <laughs> oh, showdown. I don't think. Wait, wait. I have heard of that showdown. I don't know. It was the first thing on Google. I at npm install and i just did it and it was fine yeah yeah i've been using market down for my is it my site no no it's the, the does not compute uh the dnc website <laughs> i couldn't even think what that was called i use uh market down i think so we get uh we get actual markdown from the simple cast api and i just render that on the client with market down i think and that was because there was a nuxt module available for it that's why i used it okay cool but uh, that's cool. Yeah, that's that's pretty much it. So I got that all wired up and still a little more work there. And just going to keep moving these little cards over and uh, until it's done. I mean, I'd really like to start getting it in front of people. Uh, I showed it to my uh, you know partners in the company. I set up a little tunnel and let them play with it. And uh, yeah, so far so good. So Do you use Ngrok for your tunnels? Yes, I was using Ngrok. Nice. Shout out to Ngrok because they're awesome and I use them all the time. Oh, yeah. 
Also, I just sent you a picture of my Trello board. <laughs> good God. <laughs> that's some nice organization, though. That's that's pretty good. That's me and Paul. Yeah, so so Paul and I, uh, we do everything in Trello, actually. And all of our coworkers have access to the Trello, but Paul and I are the ones really that, they mean, they might add a card here and there. So if there's a bug, they might add one to the, the bug column. So to paint a, paint a picture for the listeners, there are seven columns, future, <laughs> Feature slash change triage, bug triage, Q&A, parentheses, needs more info. <laughs> Paul up next, Sean up next, and complete. Yeah. Now, the complete column is pretty long, so that's that's good. That's good. Uh, future is also really, really equally long. <laughs> <laughs> so it's funny because we have the complete column there as a request of one of our, our salespeople and customer support people. So they, you know, it's, it's easy for them to see when things have been, because they, you know, Trello is very chatty in notifications and updates. So they see when cards change, but it's useful for them. So when they want to go and do like, a, like an update digest for store owners and say, here's what we've been doing, they can just go to this column and look at stuff. And each card, if I were to open one up, actually, I can send you a screenshot of this too. We use, this is not what we were going to talk about today, but um, let's get into it. We use uh, Google Docs heavily as well and um, checklists heavily. So as you can see in that issue, does it actually show the number of... Yeah, so this checklist is 81% complete. And I think there was like 20, 30 maybe items in the checklist. It's a pretty big one. That's one of three checklists on that on that card as well. But anyway, yeah, so... That's crazy. I'll have like a card for a feature and it has labels like major feature in these research. And then these checklists are split up by like backend work, front end work, and then things that I want to double check by click testing and things like that. So presumably most cards in the up next for both Paul and I have that much information in each card. So up next means you're actually like actively working on it. Oh yeah. So when they want to see what we're doing and like what the schedule is. So for us, it's kind of like our Gantt chart there. Uh, yeah. so the one that's at the top of up next is what I'm doing now. And the one pre like the one directly behind that's the one that I'm going to be doing next. So it's kind of ordered by, that makes sense. Yeah. So like on Wednesday, when we do our calls, they'll tell us what they've been hearing and what they want done. And so Paul and I can reorient that list. And usually they can just log in on like any other day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, whatever they can look at it and, and have a good idea of what's being worked on. And then also we use due dates on the cards too. So a due date isn't like, hey, this is due by. It's not like a external request from somebody. It's me saying, hey, I think I can have this done by this time. And so sometimes that changes, but that also communicates to them instantly when, when they can, they might be able to expect that by, which helps them communicate to customers if it's like a feature. So do you, when you make commits to GitHub, are you able to somehow link them back to the Trello cards at all? Or because I find that really really useful when I'm using GitHub issues. It's just I I just create an issue for every little thing and just tag it. Yeah. So we don't, we used to use issues more. So the issues are like mostly cleaned up now because we just have been working on stuff for a while now. So we don't actually make new issues. Everything's run through the Trello, Okay. but you can, you can attach, there's a GitHub power up for Trello where you can actually attach issues and pull requests and stuff to a card. Okay. Yeah. And so actually it's kind of cool because the pull request, if you attach a pull request to a card, it'll show you 
like the like the build status or like if you have CI it'll it'll have like a red or a green check if if the CI tests have passed and stuff so it's kind of cool. That's cool. It might be useful for like bigger like PRs, big future changes and stuff. Exactly. Yeah, that's yeah. cool. It's just that we found that Trello works the best so far for our our coworkers. GitHub was a little bit there's some friction there using twist channels uh exclusively there was some there was some friction there but trello seems to for some reason it works for everybody so that's what we use no that's great that's always the promise of these product management tools is is you know equally usable by the the techie people and the not so techie people and this cool you guys are able to actually strike that balance there yeah we still struggle with that to this day you know we use basecamp for a lot of things uh, mostly just reference, you know, one place to store and look up things when we need to. But, you know, we also have some Google Docs. We also have Google, you know, GitHub issues. We've also got, you know, just spread out all over the place. We used uh, Fogbugs for a while, which now has a different name. I forget. I think it's called like Tomorrow or I forget exactly. Whoa, what? Really? Yeah. Yeah. They rebranded it. But, uh, oh, and we used uh, another issue thing. I don't know, man. It's just uh, it's just a long list. But yeah, this is cool. Trello's Trello's pretty cool. So. Yeah, I derailed you. I can't even remember what you're talking about before that. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Uh, what's up with you, real quick? Give me the give me the DL. Well, I just I just wanted to see what your reaction was to that Trello board because it is pretty enhanced to look at. <laughs> I'm not going to put a screenshot on the show notes because bugs, but uh, it is pretty intense. <laughs> uh, what's up with me? What I've been doing? I have been uh, so I did all the mailgun stuff, which is awesome. There's been a huge like difference in number of bounces and in suppressions from mailgun side, which is my goal. So I've been back to working on this pretty big change, actually maybe the biggest change so far in terms of changing the database and introducing new concepts. Uh, so I've, the past two days, I've just been writing a lot of tests, a lot, a lot of tests. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> It's hard to, it's hard to, I think I can probably talk about it. Uh, so, so if you were in design collective and you had a store, maybe you have a second store and you might say, Hey, how can I list my second store? And we might say, you have to create a different account or we can, we can create the base store for you. And then we can attach, it's like a manual thing right now. Right. Um, but what we're doing is we're just making it more automatic guys i guess like we you know you shouldn't have to contact us to have if you wanted to list a second store because there's friction there right that means there could be lost revenue there if a person doesn't want to do that or if you know it should just be easier i guess and so that's what we're doing and so i'm introducing the concept of a company and so a company can have multiple stores and the the biggest changes are really just around how stripe stuff is handled because before uh, like a store has a Stripe subscription ID and they have um, all, you know, they have that, that correlates to like how much they're charged every month and, and all that stuff. And so that gets moved to a company. And then we also have to introduce uh, basically billing into the setup. So now there's multiple seats, which we didn't have before. And so, oh, yeah, yeah. So that's a whole thing. And so there's a lot of, you know, data changes that have to happen. So all the Stripe information has to go to the company level we have to create companies for each store that's already on the platform. We have to pre-fill some of that information. We have to also... So you like make a company and then just make the store like the default store, basically? Exactly, yeah. Something like that, yeah. yeah. A company has many stores and a store belongs to a company. That's you know, It's just a foreign key set up there. Um, so we have to like pre-fill a lot of data there. And then also, 
Yeah. So like not, we didn't always have subscriptions. So there's, there are a number of stores, maybe 20 stores or so that were kind of grandfathered in that they might not have a, a subscription ID, which causes some problems, obviously, if, if you're moving to a system where you're heavily dependent on that sort of thing. So I had to like go through and make like a free plan. And then every store that has been grandfathered in now has a subscription ID. They're just subscribed to the free plan, for example. And so that had to be done. And yeah, so it's just a lot of what makes it difficult. Like if it were just only like internal data, piece of cake. But since we're having to sync all that stuff up with Stripe, it becomes a little more difficult making sure that we're storing enough information so that we can do what we need to do, but also making sure that uh, if since we're since we're using so okay so stripe has a few different ways that you can integrate with them so there's like the custom route which means that you have to re-implement stripe's entire dashboard or whatever you need for them or you can go the simpler route which is when someone connects their store to stripe they also have a stripe dashboard they can log into so if they want to view their disputes or charges and stuff like that they log into stripe as opposed to me having to build that stuff out right right um so yeah so we're using the simpler version, but that means that any store owner can go into Stripe themselves and and do something like disc, disconnect from our Connect platform, or they can change their subscription level or something. So that means that we also have to have all this webhook stuff, this webhook handling in place, so that if that does happen, that it gets synced back to our database and everything is is in step. And so that's where the complexity comes in there is making sure that uh, the two systems play play well together. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, that's that's just the way of life for, you know, dealing with multiple services, whether microservices or whatever, you just got to, <laughs> the one thing you could do is just make them, force them to go through your app, but then you got to build out all that stuff and it might not be, make sense to do right now. It's so much work. Yeah. There's a lot. There's yeah. a lot. Yeah. And we're going to have to eventually do it with UShip as well because it's a similar thing where uh, our people use the UShip dashboard for now, but eventually we'd like to maybe automate some of that process a little bit and pull that into our system and make it easier for them to do, which means that we'll have to re-implement some of UShip's dashboard. And it just you're just taking on a lot of responsibility when you do that because then you're on the hook for API changes for all that stuff as opposed to just the transactional stuff like chargers and things. So, right. Yeah. It's beyond the scope of what we have for two developers, but... Yeah, that's what that's what I've been doing. I would love to do a teardown of that once I get that live in the next couple of weeks, really do like a dive into how I did that and how I tested it really because that was the biggest thing for me is, yeah, I could kind of like put this together and then click my way through an implementation. And by that, I mean like build the minimal amount of stuff possible to get a clickable UI working and then build as I click, which one takes forever and is error prone, I think. So what I've been doing is I'm I'm doing all as much of the API stuff I can up front and testing it as much as I can up front and then moving on to kind of like click testing and building out the UI. So uh, probably it'd be cool to to break that stuff down because it's it's a it's a lot. Yeah, we'll have to talk about that more later. And I know you're using some cool testing libraries and tools for that. So yeah, we'll yeah. Uh, we'll get into that at a later date. Later date. So we have an idea, I came up with this idea a couple weeks ago for an actual topic for today, and we're already about 20 minutes in, so <laughs> we're going to, we'll see how far we get. We might break this uh, off and continue it into next show, because I feel like I just don't want to run, run long, and there's a lot to talk about here. So yeah, yeah. as of recording, ElixirConf was two weeks ago, ElixirConf 2018 in Bellevue, Washington, and 
we decided to pick a couple of the videos on the from that were posted on the YouTube channel. Uh, they're po- posted under. Um, we'll put a link in the show notes, but I think they're done by Con Freaks. Is that who does them? Yeah, Con Freaks does a lot of con- conferences. So they actually have a ton of videos on YouTube. They're probably one of the the biggest, I think, resources for conference videos. They were great. Like they were posted the day of, which was just amazing to me. Mm-hmm. So we're going to go through a couple of these, these videos that we watched and just talk about them. Um, I watched some and Sean watched some. So we're just kind of teach each other what we learned more or less, right? Yeah. It's cool because I, I don't know what you watched here. I see it in the notes, but I didn't well, read it. So. Who wants to go first? Uh, do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? I think we should. Hold on. IEX. <laughs> you do that. That's uh, funny. Crypto. This is a random. I can do just random. Rand dot uh, normal. Okay, I'll do a normal distribution. You want high or low? I'll take low. All right. 0.81. All right, I'm going first. <laughs> this has been my favorite thing, my favorite interaction of the show so far. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, we uh, right tool for the job. That's true. Although I don't have a true... Uh, oh, you know, I really should have used uh, crypto uh, strong bytes. I have two quarters sitting on my desk right here. <laughs> <laughs> Probably use that under the hoods anyway. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Chris McCord, I th- we alluded to this last week, but Chris McCord, uh, as tradition, did one of the keynotes along with uh, Jose. And Chris McCord was talking about um, what's a little bit of what's coming new in Phoenix 1.4. So the current version of Phoenix is 1.3, and 1.4 is coming out, quote unquote, soon. Um, he said it's basically done, but, and you can actually really, you can use the master branch or just some documentation and little minor stuff to finish, but no, like, breaking changes. And uh, I know a lot of people are actually doing that, judging by what I see in the Slack. Uh, you know, using cloning master and just uh, using the generator That's directly <laughs> from, from master. Okay. Yeah, no, it's a thing you can do. And uh, <laughs> what? It's just funny to me. I'm also really tired right now, so maybe that's why I think it's funny. <laughs> But uh, yeah, the cool new thing in 1.4 is telemetry, which is a going to be a standard interface for doing metrics within Phoenix applications. So it's a it's a tiny, tiny core, um, you know, framework that um, will allow any kind of third party metrics library to to integrate very easily just by conforming to that that spec. So that'll be really good for you know measuring performance for marketing things for just anything where you need to gather stats it's going to be you know it's going to be one way to do it and then you can just hook it into you know ideally there will eventually be all the different you know interfaces to all your favorite metrics gathering services whether it's new relic or i don't know they had a, he had a whole list on the on the slide there of you know things i could interface with so that seems that's pretty cool yeah it's nice it's just a little simple thing but I think it'll provide a lot of value kind of out of the box, uh, low hanging fruit for sure. And, you know, it's always good to kind of provide those general tools. So that looked pretty neat. That's pretty much the biggest change they highlighted in 1.4. And then the next, most of the talk, he was talking about kind of stuff that was in the works for 1.5 and beyond and focusing primarily on this feature called Live View. So Live View, what it is, is it's going to be a separate well, I don't know. He, th- he said it might be separate library from Phoenix. So basically what it is, is a way to build reactive web pages, but using s- the server for the rendering. So it's kind of this draw, it fills in the space between, you know, traditional web statically 
static sites that our server, you know, spits out HTML and that's it. And then on the other end of the spectrum, obviously, is like the stuff like you are doing Nuxt, Vue.js, React, whatever, um, fully client side applications that talk to the server with an API. Hmm. And Live View is a space in the middle where, okay, I still need some, some you know, real-time reactive kind of things, but I don't need to go full client. And basically, Live Views are just, Live View is just a little gen server that runs when you, you know, and all it does is it just has a render function. It just renders HTML. And then on the web page, there are hooks so that they can trigger events on the gen server. And the gen server has state. And whenever the state changes, it just re-renders the HTML and pushes that back down to the client. It's pretty like stupidly simple, right? Yeah. And so this is cool because you can do things like, for example, you have all these change sets with all your form validations on it, right? So as you're typing in your form, it's actually in real time just like doing the change set validations and pushing the actual rendered form to the client in real time, right? Yeah, that seems to be like the example that I'm, because I'm looking at different articles right now and that seems to be the main example that people use are the example of like a sign-up form when someone clicks submit, if they're using an email address that's already taken, they should see something immediately versus having a full page refresh that kind of where they lose their context maybe. And so using this, they would get, they would get basically the change set. I mean, the the render function would be called the HTML is compiled and pushed out. And if there is now an error in the change set, then that would show up immediately on the web page. Right. And it's cool because you don't your initial page load still has the real HTML on it, right? It's all server rendered, so it's good for you know SEO and all that. Mm-hmm. And also just the page loads instantly, like it's you know, like uh Tim Berners Lee intended. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Like God intended. You uh <laughs> And like, if you go fully in this route, you really don't even need controllers because like you can just fire events and redirect all in these little live view gen servers. And he's, he's still kind of piece like figuring out like, okay, now you've got controller logic in a view that's not really where it belongs. Right. Uh, and he's trying to, you know, figure out kind of where this stuff's going to go, but it does work. Like you, you don't even, you barely even need a controller. <laughs> yeah, so it's more like the design side of things. How does this fit into the bigger picture, in, into like the maintainability picture, into the architecture design picture? Where does this kind of fit? Yeah, exactly. And like I could see this, I mean, instantly, like right away, this is seems useful for me for if I'm working on a, a client project that, again, just doesn't need, need some interactivity, but doesn't need to be crazy full a full client side app which is just a whole other beast right yeah sometimes you just need a little a little sprinkle of magic in there and so this is gonna i think gonna be really really powerful for that so what is what is the uh how how are those events triggered so i assume there's some sort of client library for javascript that's going to be provided for this to like give you the bindings to trigger events yeah i believe so i think it's all pretty vanilla stuff i mean what you do is you just put an attribute on a link so you just say oh, uh, okay. Phoenix dash click uh-huh. and you give it a string like uh, he gives an example of the counter, right? And is a plus and a minus. So the plus says Phoenix click increment and it's just a string. And then on the live view gen server, it just says handle event increment and just updates the state. It feels very uh, Rails. It reminds me of uh, the UJS tools from Rails. Okay. Yeah. I'm not familiar with that, but. Oh, really? Yeah. It's, it's, uh, yeah, I never did did view with with rails uh let me see if i can look it up real quick uh but yeah so like ujs 
I mean, I haven't done Rails in a long time. Wait, did you say Vue.js? Oh, no, no, no. Uh, Ujs. Uh, oh. Unobtrusive scripting. It's unobtrusive. Oh, oh, yeah. That gosh. used to become, that used to become bundled. <laughs> I can't even talk. Right. Yes, exactly. It's Yeah, it's bundled. But it's basically, it was just data attributes. So... Uh, if you wanted to hijack a form submit, you would you would use the data attribute on the form, yes, and you could do it that way. Yeah, that's it's very similar to that, I think. Okay, yeah. So basically, you don't have to write a bunch of JS yourself. You just use uh, attributes that the the included um, client scripts know to look at, and and they kind of set themselves up when the page boots, and then when when you do something that it knows to look for, it, it kind of takes over for you. Yeah, and he also mentioned that right now, like it's still not very not optimized at all, right? He's just kind of playing with it, and sure. you do push the full HTML to the client every time a change happens. But there is some smart diffing done on the on the client side, so the DOM is only updated like where it's needed. Yeah, I don't know how that works, but you know, only the you know the whole thing isn't wiped and re-rendered basically. So right, I mean, it seems like a really cool idea. Like when I very first heard about it, I was I was thinking to myself that seems like a very Rails style way of doing something, right? Because I remember the TurboLink stuff, and I remember when um, they shipped an update where you could update portions of the UI with TurboLinks. So if you wanted like a menu to remain um, on one side of the screen, but you wanted to change another part, you could do that with TurboLinks. Uh, I wish I could go into more detail, but that's all I remember at this point. But I don't mean that as a bad thing. I just mean that it's like um, it's a very, very uh, specialized tool for doing something. And if you're able to get away with using that tool, it saves you a ton of work. Yeah, for sure. And nobody actually knows how TurboLinks works, so don't worry about it. <laughs> and yeah, of course, the question comes into your mind immediately. It's like, okay, like this works. Like now you've got this state on the server, you know, you kind of worry about scalability a little bit, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Because now you've got state on the server that's per client right that's kind of long lived but he uh and you're right and you worry about kind of maybe performance but again this is elixir and erlang like it's it's going to scale fine and he he gave an example he showed an example of a uh like an animation where it it's just kind of like a sine wave looking thing with colors Mm -hmm. and he actually re-renders the entire animation at 60 frames per second um, in Phoenix wow. and pushes 60 frames per second updates to the client and it was like totally smooth and fine. Yeah, looking at the GIF for that right now. <laughs> it's pretty funky. So uh, just a silly example, but it it's it's pretty feasible. So yeah, I mean, I mean, again, I, I keep saying it reminds me of the UJS stuff. And back when I was doing some Rails apps, I used UJS pretty heavily on the first couple of apps that I worked on and it worked great. Uh, it started to break down a little bit once, uh, once there was more like non, it's hard, hard to, hard to describe it, but once things started getting really custom, yeah, it was more difficult to, to work around that stuff. But yeah, I was just thinking about that. It's like, what happens when you go down this road and like, okay, it's good enough. It's good enough. It's good enough. And then all of a sudden you need some crazy interactivity that like, oh no, like now I got to do some real, real JavaScript stuff. And it's like. When where you draw that line, what tools are you using at that point? Now you've got interactive things happening in two places and the state and mm-hmm. keeping everything's in sync and you gotta build an API and it's like uh, yeah, you just I guess you just hope you don't get to that point. <laughs> <laughs> or I guess you have to make the right design decisions to not arrive at that um at that point too. But that's really my only my only observation is 
I'm not really worried, you know, because I think I think I did read some things about how people were worried about performance server wise and and that sort of thing. But that wasn't my first th- my first thought. My first thought was I kind of I, I had tools similar to this before with Rails and they worked great to a point. And once you got to that point, it became much more difficult to do things um, in a nice way. And then I mean that's kind of how. With Design Collective, we got to the point of, all right, now we're going to split this into API and client. And so maybe maybe that's just part of a maturation. Maturation is how you say it, I guess. That's part of the maturation process is when you get to a certain point, are you do you, do you actually separate the concerns out into API and client or do you find another way to work around it? So I don't know. Maybe that's not a real issue, but that was the first thing that came to my mind was, uh, long-term maintainability and scalability, not in performance, but scalability in the freedom you have to design an app or design a design a feature to work a certain way. Yeah, and Chris works for Dockyard, and Dockyard has like lots and lots of clients and lots of big clients, right? So they mm-hmm. they work on a lot of projects. You know, they they exclusively take on you know contract work, basically. They're not really doing a lot of stuff in-house besides their, you know, open source projects that they release. But like, I can imagine that this was born out of, well, Chris kind of talks about like he originally wrote like a Ruby, a Rails library called Mm sync.rb, which kind of did the same thing. And this is kind of born out of that same idea. But I can picture Dockyard like having lots and lots of client applications that need this kind of functionality. And it just kind of, I, I really think that when you're in that kind of environment, you see exactly what what people need and what people want, and this obviously seems like a good fit. You know, I, that, he didn't actually explicitly say that, but kind of reading between the lines, I think. Yeah, I think that's probably what bore that out. I think I think you're probably right. I mean, I think like this, you know, describing the use case for like the form the form validation stuff, not having to define uh, validations twice and not having to define messaging twice and not having to, it's a, it's a small thing, but it's still a thing. And if you're thinking about consulting and you're thinking about having lots of clients, I can see a live view would, would certainly save a lot of time, which means that they're saving money, which means they're making more money in the long run. Yeah. He kept, he kept harping on the, the time to market, you know, yeah, just, yeah. just not having to spend time learning new technologies, building them, supporting them, yeah. just just using what you know inside of the box. So, yeah, I mean, I would be very interested in spinning something up and testing it out just to see what it's like, because there are, I mean, you know, Design Collective is already split into <laughs> API and clients, so it's not like we could really use it right now. Um, but and there's a lot of features that I'm thinking about that I could use something like Live View with uh for example we've talked about doing some sort of like event stream for stores uh so someone so liked your product someone so followed your source someone so purchased this product and with live view you would be able to just do a real-time dashboard uh just just like that yeah that was one of the things he demoed was having like having two windows open and you make changes on one it just you know, propagates the other one, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Or like even inventory management, if you're thinking about that, because I'm sure a lot of people, because a lot of our stores actually hire an employee to specifically manage their design collective store. Sure. And in, I would I would certainly, if I were doing something like that, I would certainly have multiple tabs open. So even having it like that, if they're, if they're managing inventory, having inventory synced across tabs without having them having to refresh, sounds like a huge win. And not having to do a lot in the way of engineering it i mean like you said if you're able to just set up a this looks like it you uses uh views i'm trying to find the code snippet yeah so you have like 
demoweb.clockview and it uses phoenix.liveview. It has a render function and init and handle info, which I assume are just callbacks for the gen server. That's it. I mean, you could set all this stuff up in an afternoon and have like a thing that was working. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Especially if like you needed to do like a one-off some some special app that was just for clients, maybe like embedding in their page or like, you know, some some other special dashboard or something that might be separate from, you know, you don't want to load in the full mm-hmm. the full Nuxt application. Yeah, no, this is this is really cool. I mean, I'm really yeah. excited to see where this goes and I want I mean, I'm not I'm not uh it's kind of funny the timing, but I've been thinking about rewriting Bthink to be just like a, a Phoenix server rendered thing just because it's easier for me to hack on at that point. When I first made it, um, I think I did the original version in Rails like a long time ago. And then that way I already had the client side of it. And then when I came back to it to say like, oh, I'm actually going to do like I'm going to make this this time. I use Phoenix because that's what I was familiar with. So I already had it split out into API and client. But when it's late at night and I don't really want to... <laughs> You know, spend a lot of time with there's something I need to do on it. It would be cool if it were just a simple EX thing. So now you're going you're going the opposite direction. I mean, I thought about it. You know, I, I thought about it. I have it just because it's already working. But this is tempting because I could do a real time, you know, a real time thing. Like if I needed to without all the extra hoops, I suppose. I don't I don't know. It's maybe it's my like desire to tinker. And it's also my desire to be like, oh, I just did this whole feature on the back end and now I have to do it on the front end. I have to do the front end portion of it, which means I have yeah. to open up another repo and I have to figure out how I'm going to ship them. You know, if one feature depends on another, how am I going to deploy those? And it's, it's the whole thing. <laughs> I wouldn't have to worry about that if I just had a Phoenix rendered app. There you go. You just, you just, that's the, you just proved it to yourself. <laughs> it's yeah. useful. <laughs> oh, by the way, I tried the thing where I had the, Nuxt app and the Phoenix app in the same GitHub repo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, don't do that. Don't do that. I had a bug that I'd fixed, but I had I and I couldn't figure out why the bug kept happening in Phoenix. And the reason was that the bug fix commit was buried in all this this Nuxt mm. development com- commits, and so I never actually had merged it back into master and deployed it. So it was just sitting there waiting for me to deploy. As soon as I deployed it, everything was fine. But like I didn't even realize that I hadn't deployed it yet because I just completely lost it in the lo- in the Git log. So I uh, I just split it up into two repos, which I should have done from the start. I wanted to try it because I thought like <laughs> I'd be developing in lockstep and like I kind of you know like you you know worrying about features and versioning and stuff. But yeah, no, you should just keep them separate. Turns out I thought mono repos were the answer. <laughs> Anyhow, what else did he talk about? That was pretty much it. That that was it actually. He spent most of the time on on live view. The uh, got a lot of applause. I yeah, but uh, he's really he's he's really funny because he like is very he he thinks more like an engineer, whereas like Jose is more of like a CS like developer, right? Mm-hmm. And so Chris is like, I just make things work well enough. Like just you know he works top down. He's like, okay, what do I want? And then he just does what he needs to get there. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, then I hand it to Jose, and he makes it like actually work well. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, that's a good, good relationship to have, I guess. A dynamic duo. Yeah. So what? Uh, what did you find interesting on the? I've got a few more here, but let me uh, let me hear what you've got. Yeah. Okay. So I watched two lightning talks, and uh, the first one I watched was called "Kernel Functions You'll Want to Know About," and 
the reason why I thought this was cool is because in, I think the, the video is like three minutes long. In three minutes, I learned three new things. <laughs> so uh, that's why that's why I decided that to talk about it because it was, it was just, I don't know, I thought it was cool. But it, it's really nothing major, nothing groundbreaking. It's just simple things uh, that, that are a little bit, uh, save you some time or, you know. Uh, so the first example is, in in testing a lot, um, I have to get the the first item in a list whether I'm asserting that something was returned in a query or whatever. I usually do, I usually do list dot first and then pass in a list. Well, the kernel has a shorter function called HD, uh, which stands for head. So it just gives you that it just returns the head of the list. <laughs> uh, and like I said, nothing major. You're just replacing list dot first with HD, but it's a little shorter, a little less typing involved. And uh, likewise with enum.count, there's actually a kernel function called length. So you can pass uh, length or you could pass any sort of enumerable to length and it'll just give you the length of that enumerable. That's interesting. It makes you wonder why they even, because they're pretty good about not having multiple ways to do things in mm-hmm. the Elixir standard library. It makes you wonder why why they do that and like how come it's list.first? Why is it not enum.first? Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But what's funny is that if you look at the source code for enum.count, it just uses length under under the hood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know about I don't know if it was like consistency or, you know, just keeping keeping similar tools in in in, in a similar namespace, I suppose. That would be my only thought. But I guess you actually you can't use you couldn't use head. You couldn't do enum.first because head only works on lists, right? It doesn't work on any generic numerable right like a stream or whatever you right can't get the head of a stream yeah yeah exactly that could that could be it another way to get the head of the list is just pattern matching you can just assign it you know bracket head pipe underscore close yeah. bracket <laughs> that was hard to say because that's basically that's why head and tail exists because the whole nature of dealing with reductions and pattern matching and recursive functions and all that but mm-hmm. anyway no, that's all. It's all good stuff. I hadn't really thought about it. I was just like, "This is shorter. This is nice." <laughs> and the last thing he talks about is um, is basically how you can. Uh, so if you have a struct and you want to add something to the struct, you can use map dot put if you wanted to. So you could pipe a struct into map and then put something on it. But that allows you to add any sort of key. Uh, so even if if you define a struct and you use map dot put, you can put something that wasn't previously defined on the struct. So Maybe you want to limit puts to only things that are available on the struct. So I knew about the literal syntax. So it looks kind of like a map, only you pass in the struct and then pipe and then a keyword list of the attributes you want to put into the struct. Uh, and I'll put show notes. Uh, I'll put this in the show notes because I'm sure it's hard to follow me talk about it. But I didn't know there was also a struct function on the kernel. So you could actually, uh, it's just struct. It takes two arguments. Struct is the first argument and the keyword list of values is the second one. And if the if the keyword list of values includes a key that's not um, defined on the struct, it'll just drop it. Okay, very nice. Yeah, so that kind of prevents you from fat fingering something or doing mm-hmm. the wrong thing or mm-hmm. having the wrong struct being passed in. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it is a little bit less cumbersome to type because I actually have a snippet in my editors. So I hit, I hit type M and hit tab and it does percent uh, left brace for me. Nice. Because <laughs> I hate hitting percent. But anyway, yeah, so you wouldn't have to worry about that. You can just type struct and uh, yeah, it's a little bit less cumbersome to type. Oh yeah, cause, and you can pipe into struct then too, right? Because you couldn't pipe into the the literal exactly. uh, yep. syntax. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't even realize that, but you're right. I think you can also use struct to build like empty structs too. Like you pass it the the module name for the struct, right? And you can 
Yep. You can build a struct that way. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just, it's like more of a convenience kind of thing. Sure. Yeah. But uh, that was my first video was just three little things uh, that made me feel like I know Elixir a little bit better, which was, which kind of cool. I can do another quick video if you want. Uh, yeah, I can go talk for about it. Because it. it's another lightning talk, so it was a short one. Uh, but this one was called uh, Type Specs. I'm going to have to click play here so I can see the actual title. I still can't see the actual title. Thanks, Notion. Uh, the video was about Type Specs. And they're saying... For the love of God. For the love of God, uh, use Type Specs. <laughs> and uh, it was just a really, like I said, it was a short one. It's about four minutes long, but... It was just a good reminder for me, I think, this morning as um, I was preparing to jump back into this this big uh, feature update that I've been working on. And it's just working with a lot of data from Stripe. So I'm, you know, I'm having to basically, there, there's a lot of functions and arguments being tossed around. And sometimes, then this is exactly what his talk was about. Sometimes it's hard to keep it all straight and then say your team grows Maybe you're familiar with this stuff, but they're not, so it's confusing. And so his first example was a function that took four arguments and the variables were like something and then start time, end time. But he was like, start time, end time, what is that? Is it is it a string value? Is it a struct value? What is it? He, I don't know. I just know that it maybe has something to do with the time. And so he was just saying that, you know, using type specs will will save you save you some grief down the road because it's immediately clear what the arguments are that this function takes and it's immediately clear what you will get back from this function. So they're there and you should probably use them uh, because it makes, like I said, it'll save you time down the road. It'll save you a little bit of confusion down the road. But also because Elixir is compiled, we have some editors that can take advantage of that and help you out as you're working as well. So it was just a good reminder for me to jump back into um, type specking functions that have lots of arguments. Yeah, you can definitely fall in the trap where you get a module all working and maybe you don't type spec it out right while you're doing it because you're not really sure what arguments you need or what types they should be or what you're going to return. But And then you're like, oh, it's done. It works. You know, move on to the next thing. <laughs> but yeah, but if you just spend a few minutes, because I mean, you know, reading code is is way harder than writing code and, and uh, anything you can do to make that easier. And then you get the docs for free, which like, it's one of the best things about the docs is being able to just look at the type specs and be able to read them. And like, I, I have to look at Erlang and docs a lot for using some of those native libraries and uh, they have type specs over there as well. And they're pretty much exactly the same, uh, you know, the way that they, they work. Uh, the syntax is a little different, but it's, it's similar enough. And so it's uh, yeah, it's just good for, for future you. It might as well be another member of your team, right? Just yeah. the future version of you that has to look at this crap later. Yeah, and then I mean you can use tools like Dialyzer and Static Analysis to help you out. So it's just another level of linting, another level of a spell check, so to speak. I think which I can use all the help I can get these days. So <laughs> it was just a good reminder for me to to do that. And your VS Code plugin for Elixir that shows the type specs as well, right? For autocomplete, uh, I think so. Yeah, I'm using Elixir LS. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. And meanwhile, like all the people using compiled typed language out there are probably yelling at us like, <laughs> hey, types are good, yep. they're useful, especially on big projects. Especially on big projects, yeah. Oh, dude. Yeah. 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 I've been learning more. Yeah, I've been I've been learning a little bit more about that. I've been, here we go. Do I say it? I've been using IntelliJ for the last two weeks. Ooh. It's so, like a full-fledged IDE. 
Well, we could talk more about that at some point too. I heard some people cringe. Yeah, but does it have Vim key bindings though? That's the important question. Yes. Of course it would, otherwise you wouldn't be using it. Yes, it has everything I need built into it, including uh, Vim, including uh, Git uh, stuff, including database connections, everything. Uh, Test runner, a test UI, auto running tests. Um, but really what, what, uh, got me hooked on it was the keyboard, like the keyboard shortcuts. You can do absolutely everything, uh, with the keyboard. It's pretty nice. So yeah, we should probably talk about that. I don't know how you're able to switch editors so frequently, man. I mean, I, you tried to get me to switch to VS code and I tried it for two weeks and I was still, still using sublime keyboard shortcuts. I couldn't, right. couldn't do it. It's killing my productivity way too much. So here I am back on sublime. Well, there's an add-on for IntelliJ called Key Promoter. So when you click on a button, it shows you what the keyboard, it pops up with a little thing saying, hey, you could have done that with this shortcut. So uh, <laughs> literally, you're just seeing shortcuts all day long. And then also, it's seriously super good. Command-Shift-A is called Show Actions. So you can, uh, kind of like on the Mac, how you can do Control-Shift-Question-Mark, uh, and it'll highlight the help dialog. And then you start typing, and it shows you what's available in the in the menus. Um, it's like that. So you hit command shift a and you can type anything and you can do anything that you can do in the app. So command shift a da- uh, database and it'll, you hit enter and it opens a database pane command shift a Git or VCS boom. The, the Git tab is open command shift a, uh, select the next occurrence. It'll actually select the next occurrence in the editor command shift a focus, whatever. So you can do everything through that. And then when it shows you what you're trying to do, it actually next to it, it says, here's what the keyboard shortcut is. Right. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. So I like how a lot of, a lot of things these days have fuzzy terminal like things. I mean, sublime has that VS code has that. I just learned that, uh, that Mac OS shortcut. So thanks for that. didn't know that (laughs) one. That's cool. It's a big one. I use it all the time. Um, but yeah, we can, maybe we can make an episode out of that because uh, I have a lot to talk about it. Uh, shout out to friend of the show, Greg, for saying, Hey, you should give it a try seriously. Because before I just thought it was a bloated editor IDE and I was like, this, I don't need that, you know, <laughs> but now that I'm using it, I'm like, dang, this is nice. And it's all in one app. It's, it's, uh, yeah, it's not slow. Like I thought it would, or I thought it was, it's actually, I think over the course of a full day, I have less performance issues with that than I do with VS Code spinning up random processes. Yeah, so we got, just as predicted, we're running long and we got about halfway through the talks that we wanted to talk about. So we'll see if we can pick this up uh, next time or or another time and uh, call for tonight. How's that sound? Yeah, that sounds good. Maybe next week, because my main video was about testing, actually, and I've been writing a lot of tests. So maybe next week we can dive into that a little bit more. Um, yeah. when I break down that video, but, uh, yeah. Uh, if you heard anything you liked today, let us know. If you heard something you didn't like, let us know. Still, it's okay. Uh, we appreciate any shares, any feedback. We just like to hear from everybody. We like to hear good and bad. Smash that like button. Smash the like and subscribe. Uh, uh, follow. That's unironic. Uh, DNC show on Twitter. Sean is Sean Washbot and I'm Shrockwell. And as always, the show notes are available at dnc.show. And I will have to make sure to remember to put the GitHub because I usually put the show notes at GitHub as well. So I'll put those there. Cool. And yeah, we're always over hanging out in spectrum.chat. We've got a channel over there for the show amongst other developer topics. So uh, they'll post the show and you can have discussions and chat with us there. And uh, just another shout out to Spec for having us and, and hosting our show 
And uh, if you're looking for a job, they've got a job board at spec.fm slash jobs. So go and check that out. And uh, if you haven't checked out the other shows on the network, you should check them out because there are shows like Design Details. They're a weekly conversation about design, process, and culture. They've got Fragmented, which is an Android developer podcast and talk about building good software uh, in the Android ecosystem. And there's also Swift Unwrapped, which is a monthly show containing the latest news from the Swift world. So there's lots of shows on the network. If you haven't, if you've only heard of us, you should go check the network out. There's uh, some good content there. Yeah. So finally, we just want to thank Mikhail for editing the show and Sarah Jackson for producing this episode of Does Not Compute. Well, I will uh, I'll talk to you next week. All right, man. Later. Later.